Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. 1 Samuel, chapter 17. And we're going to look at one of the most beloved uh, stories in Scripture. One of the most um, talked about stories in Scripture. One of those stories that gets referenced from people who never read the Bible. One of those stories that gets referenced from people who don't believe the Bible but they'll still talk about it. Now, usually you hear about it in our kind of uh, settings in sporting events, right? David versus Goliath. And you hear it because that means that there is a severe underdog that is playing what would seem to be a powerhouse. In fact, um, following the 1030 service today, uh, I am taking my son to, my oldest son, to the Titans-Patriots game. All right, and uh, which means that y'all may get the long sermon, and the ten thirty crowd may get the short sermon. All right. Uh, now, now I said jokingly said that earlier in the week, and Alan said you better watch that. The Lord will lay a message on your heart that takes an hour. All right. So, uh, but some people are even kind of claiming that it's kind of a David versus Goliath story, right? You have the vaunted New England Patriots, Tom Brady, considered to be one of the top two or three quarterbacks in history, Super Bowls, Bill Belichick and the hoodie all coming in to play lowly little Nashville, Tennessee. And our new quarterback that's never started a game as the official starter, it's just a hopeless case. But the truth is, there is a good shot Tennessee wins today. And so it's really not a David versus Goliath story. You see, we throw that term around too easily. Because we say it about small underdogs. Or even mentioning in light of a sporting event kind of lessens what really happened there. And to be truthful, just like Noah's Ark, David and Goliath is a story that if read completely and as written in Scripture, is not a real kid-friendly story. We, we sanitize it and wash out some of the parts. Now, some of you already know some of those parts, and some of you will get there, all right? But it's one of those stories that it seems nice, right? It seems almost kind of, um, it, it seems like this great underdog story, but it still at its center has death and conflict and real drama. In fact, there are some, some people that are writers, not biblical scholars, not people that really believe the Bible, that say that David and Goliath is one of the most dramatic and complete stories you can hear. Remember we talked about Elijah the, last week, the man from parts unknown? Well, by the time we get to this passage... We know where David is from, but at the end of the passage, Saul, who by this time, in Saul's, I don't guess, defense, but Saul had not been right mentally for a little while, they start asking, well, where's this kid from? Where's this David from? It, it was an unknown kind of guy. It was not one of their top warriors. In fact, it wasn't even one of their warriors. It was the food delivery boy who was a shepherd against this imposing figure. Anybody remember how tall Goliath was? Nine feet, nine inches. That's kind of tall, right? Right? For today, if somebody nine nine walked in, we might recognize them. 
Well, think about this. In their day and time, we, we just imagine that everybody in, oh, and we just imagine everybody back then kind of looked like everybody today. But the average height, according to people that have seen and found skeletons and remains of people this time frame in history, the average height for a Jewish male during this time would have been somewhere between four and a half and five feet. Now, if nine nines tall to us as the average height is somewhere for males today, somewhere in the five, seven to six foot range, can you imagine how tall a nine nine guy was to four and a half feet? And David may not have been fully grown. You know the contrast, right? We're going to read some of the Scripture, but you know the contrast, right? You had Goliath who was heavily armored, right? Like to the point that he was wearing around 125 pounds of armor. That's heavily armored. I carry around a 10-pound child, and that gets heavy after a while. 125 pounds is a lot of armor, and... Not only that, he had a guy whose whole job was to walk in front of him with a shield. Now, it wasn't like a little shield that you get in you know, a, a costume store for Halloween. It wasn't that. It was like a picnic table he was carrying around in front of Goliath. What was David wearing? Whatever he had, right? Whatever he walked up to the battlefront with. His delivery boy clothes. Now, he wasn't a pizza delivery man, so don't get that Domino's picture in your head, but he's delivery clothes, right? And all he's got with him as any kind of weapon is a slingshot. Now, most of us, when I think of slingshots, I think of the thing you pull back and, you know, and do. That's not what he had, all right? So he didn't have the Mattel version of the slingshot. It was something that he would have whipped around and thrown. And also, let me just kind of get this out of the way, it wasn't a pebble that he threw at Goliath either. Most of the stones would have been about that large. Okay? So it wasn't a pebble, it was a smooth stone that he would have found in the dry creek bed. Here's the remarkable thing about the story of David and Goliath. Is that it is a major turning point in the entire story of the Bible. You see, for the chapters right before this, the Bible writer, the writer of 1 Samuel, is beginning to develop a contrast between two guys. David, the would-be king, and Saul, the current king. And he's developing this contrast to show the difference between those that follow the Lord and those that follow their own way. Look at chapter 17 with me, starting in verse 1. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Saka and Judah and camped between Saka and Azekah and Ephthes Damim. Y'all know where that is, so I won't even tell you. I don't really, it's, it's over there, okay? Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. Now, what you get in the Old Testament is, you know, the Israelites went into the Promised Land, and when they get into the Promised Land, they have these little skirmishes, and one of the people they have these skirmishes with is 
the Philistines, right? And, and we know the Philistines are the bad guys. That's just what we've read. We know just a few chapters before this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture, too, that we're not going to cover in this series, but it's when Jonathan and his armor bearer just decide to run up on the hill and attack the Philistines, and they do this amazing work that God has called them to do. And so the Philistines are a little upset that they've been on the losing side of the skirmish, and it's time to repay the Israelites for what's happened. So they line up on opposite sides of the valley, ready to go to battle. And they decide that this time they've got that, uh, they've got that secret weapon. Let's call them to a mano a mano battle. One on one. Our guy versus your guy. And they said, and you know, they would say this with compassion, so that we don't have the loss of so many lives, let's just let one go against one. It, we'll let you choose whoever you want, and we, we've got a guy for you. And out walks Goliath. You, you know, a couple of weeks ago I told you that um, the Bible is one of the hottest things in Hollywood right now. They're actually in development for a movie they're calling Goliath that apparently will have nothing to do with the story of Scripture, but will be a deeply intensive action flick. Goliath walks out. It says he was nine feet, nine inches tall in verse four and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There were bronze armor on his shins and a bronze sword slung between his shoulder. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, if that wasn't enough, there was a shield-bearer walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Verse 12, the first two words. Now David. You see, the whole chapters leading up to this have been a comparison of these two men. In fact, if you want to be honest about who should have gone and challenged Goliath, who should it have been? Saul. But what does it say about Saul when he sees Goliath? He's terrified. Now, this isn't the first time that Saul is classified as terrified. This is an interesting thing. Some of us, some of you may remember this, some of you may not, but you remember that Saul was the first king of Israel. Remember that Israel, God said, these are my people, these are the people that will be, and, and what God said to them is, I will be your king. You don't need a king, I will be your king. Well, we get through that whole period of the judges, you know, where um, they do good and then they forget God and they do bad and God comes in and sends a judge and things happen and they do good again, they repent and they get in that cycle and at the end of the cycle they say, God, all the other kids have kings. Can we please have a king? Now, maybe that's not how you hear it, but with my kids these days, that's how I read it, all right? Dad, 
Everybody else has got every Skylander. I need this one. I'm only asking for one. The Israelites sound like petulant children. God, I know you said you would be our king. I know that was your idea. That was a really good idea. But everybody else has a king. God, we want a king. Give us a king. And God says, I'm your king. And he, they said, that's great, God, but we want a real king. And so God says, all right, I'll give you what you think you want. And so they go out and they look for this guy and they choose Saul. That's who is anointed. And God says, anoint Saul. And Saul is picture perfect for a king. He is the right size. He is built. He is strong. He looks good in a armor. He is this leader, at least from his appearances. And so they choose him, and then he, he tells them about that, and they go out and they cast lots to find who it is, kind of to show the process to the people. We're going to go from the tribes to the tribe to the family to the person, and when they get to that it has fallen to Saul, do you know where Saul is? He's hiding in the luggage. That's what it says. It says in Scripture that they say, where is Saul? And God says, he's over in the baggage. Hiding. And they go and they pull him out. I, I get this picture of Samuel going over, come on Saul, let's go, it's time to be king. And they pull him out. And Saul then becomes king. And it starts out really good. But that inadequacy begins to creep in. And he begins to doubt the Lord. And he begins to think that he has better ideas. And the last straw, as God says, there was this family, that, this group of people that when we enter the promised land, I told them to get rid of and They didn't get rid of So Saul, it's your job to get rid of these people. It's a direct command for me. Get rid of them all. And everything they have, destroy. And so they go to battle and they win the battle. And it says, and they killed every one of them except the king. And they destroyed everything except the best stuff that they kept for themselves. And at the end of that little story, Samuel confronts Saul and says, because you have not trusted the Lord and done, and you have not done what He asked, you have been rejected as king. In fact, it's this very poetic way he says, because you have rejected the Lord's commands, the Lord has rejected you. And in the next chapter, we're introduced to the ruddy little boy who wasn't even old enough that his dad thought he deserved to be at the table when the prophet came to down to anoint a king. Saul, the one that looked the part, should have been the one that answered the challenge. David, who didn't, should have been the one cowering. But there's this little phrase in that anointing of David that we know if you've been around church at all that says, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. You, you know that, you know we're in the middle of electing a president. Did y'all know that? And I don't know if y'all were aware that that was going on. I mean, it's been going on since we elected the president four years ago, but it's continuing. You know what's interesting about the America and presidential elections is there was a major turning point in the campaign in 1960, I believe, between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. 
they held a debate. And it was the first televised debate. And here's what's interesting, and I'm not here to ask who your politics are. I'm not, you know, I, I was not around to see it or to hear it. People that heard the debate thought Nixon won two to one. People that watched the debate thought Kennedy won two to one. And since that day, how candidates look have become a major part of whether they are electable or not. Because man focuses on the outside. But God looks at the heart. Now, this, this, I don't mean this crass or other than what I'm saying. When was the last time we had a bad-looking president? I mean, just, uh, you know, a guy that, you, I mean, Ronald Reagan was a movie star, right? I mean, we, we elect people, hopefully on ideas, but man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And what we see here is what I love. And it doesn't matter who you are in the Lord's economy. If your heart's devoted to Him, He's going to use you in a mighty way. Now David. And he goes on to tell us where he was. He, he tells us that he was the eighth son and during Saul's reign, Jesse had become an old man and Jesse's oldest sons had gone to war and that's Eliab and Abinadad and Shammah. David was the youngest David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. And so David was the youngest. He couldn't be part of it. And this was going on for 40 days. Goliath would come out and say, "Where's this? I'm challenging you both day and night. So just quick math, 40 times 2 is 80. So 80 times he comes out and he says that there's no response. Well, one of those trips, David is taking some food. Now, this story, in every way possible, shows the contrast between these two. Bronze was a valuable commodity, and Goliath is wearing 125 pounds of it. David comes bringing the foods of poor people. He brings food that would have been in the houses of those who didn't have very much. Roasted grain, loaves of bread, ten portions of cheese to the commanders. It wasn't much, but it was some. And what we see here is really what Jesse wanted. It wasn't so much just to give them food. He wanted to know that they were okay. And so he goes to the battle line. David goes and he gets there. He lets the flock with somebody else. And as he gets there, he makes his way to the front lines where he sees all this happening. And Goliath comes out. And what David is going to teach us is that for those of us that want to be followers of Jesus Christ, that those of us that want to live our lives in devotion to the Lord, there is one key concept that has to be a part of our lives. And it is simply this, that we must trust the Lord completely. Trust the Lord completely. He comes to the front line. And somebody says to him, did you see the man who came out? He comes to defy Israel. And this is what the king has offered. And this is I think this is interesting. He offers, listen, if anybody will go out and defeat him, I will give him my daughter to marry, which makes you part of the royal family. And you won't have to pay taxes all your life. 
I imagine around the campfires that night there were some discussions like, you know, I've got a sweetheart back home and I've seen some of his daughters and mine's a little better than her. And you know, taxes are my way of contributing to society. I don't see any reason I should not have to pay those. I think I'll just stay where I am. I mean, those are pretty good incentives, right? I mean, I know we don't have kings around, so marrying the king might not be a big, big deal, but no taxes for the rest of your life is a pretty big deal. Amen? All right. Anybody that doesn't say amen want to pay mine for the rest of my life, it'll be all right. That's a big deal. Nobody's taking it up. And this is what I love. David doesn't give any indication that that stuff matters. He doesn't say, ooh, we don't have to pay taxes? Verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing with him. And I love this verse. What will be done for this man who kills the Philistines or removes the disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, when you trust God completely, you see things differently than everybody else. Everybody else saw a nine-foot-nine man in unpenetrable armor as a no-win situation. David sees it as something that is completely unacceptable. He doesn't pull any punches here, does he? Who is this uncircumcised? That means he's not part of God's family. Philistine that is the opponent of God that he should defy the armies of the living God. I don't care how big he is. I don't care how much armor he's wearing. No one defies the armies of the living God. Why are we letting this stand? Why is everybody cowering in fear? Why are we standing here while He is mocking our God? It's time to do something. And if nobody else will, I will. I love how the story just unfolds. Eliab gets mad and says, go home. And David just says, I'm just asking a question. David said to Saul, don't let anybody be discouraged anymore. I'll go kill him. We'll win this fight. <laughs> Saul, you can almost hear him laughing. You, you ever had a, a child, maybe it's one of yours, maybe it's a grandkid, maybe it's a, a child you know that just declares something with such confidence that you know they have no ability to do? I remember when I was growing up one time, I, my mom had just bought a brand new dress for a wedding she was going to. And it was one of those that she had spent more than she should have spent. And as I was getting into the car one day, I accidentally, with my foot, knocked the dress a little bit out of the car. And it caught some in the door and a lot out the door. And as we're driving, we heard, boom, boom, boom. Mom thinks we've got a flat tire, so she gets out, and the dress is wrapped around the tire. That was a fun day, I can tell you that. And I remember saying, I, was, I remember bawling. I just remember, you know, I was, I was about Luke's age. And I just remember bawling. And I remember saying to her, Mom, I will buy you a new dress. And she stopped and looked at me and said, I can't buy a new dress. How are you going to do it? I get the feeling Saul looks at David and goes, I'm not going to fight him. How do you think you're going to fight him? But to show the desperation, they let him go. It's almost as if Saul says, let's just get it over with. Now, what do they try to do? You know the story, right? They try to do what with David? They try to put on Saul's armor and it doesn't work. And 
Here's the thing, when you trust the Lord completely, you don't have to worry about everybody else's stuff, being somebody else. You just be who you are. You live who you are. You trust what God has given you. So they go out, and I love this. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and put them in a pouch, a shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the field. Now I want you to think about this, visualize the contrast. This nine-foot-nine warrior in full garb and this four-and-a-half-to-five-foot boy walking out with a shepherd's staff and a sling. Goliath's not amused. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. We leave that out of the children's curriculum usually. And David said, last week I called Elijah a world-class trash talker, right? David's right on par with him. Look at verse 45. You come against me with a dagger, a spear, and a sword, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of God Almighty, the God of Israel's armies. You have defied Him. Look at verse 46. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I will strike you down, cut your head off, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth, then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord. He will hand you over to us. That's better than Braveheart right there. Right? Better than William Wallace going up and down the troops yelling, right? We also cut out that whole part about cutting your head off and, you know, Giving your corpses to the birds, that whole thing. But here's the thing. When you trust the Lord completely, you have absolutely nothing to lose. The reason that he could talk like that is because he knew God would back it up. God had promised them victory over the Philistines. So why weren't they taking it? Because they weren't trusting in the Lord. You know the story, right? The Philistine starts to move forward, and David, who's a pesky little guy, apparently very quick, that's the way I start to feel now when I'm trying to chase my boys. They're getting a little too fast for me. David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. You have this image of the armor bearer slowly moving and Goliath sauntering forward and David running full force, unencumbered. David put his hand in his back. It's just this fluid motion. Took out the stone, took it around, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell his face on the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Even though David had no sword, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. That's the end of the story, right? No, that's not the end of the story. What did David say he was going to do? He was going to cut his head off. He didn't have a sword, so where is he going to get a sword? From Goliath, David ran over, stood over him. I get this picture of the mouths, literally the jaws on the ground of the Philistine side and the Israelites. As their giant is on the ground and David is standing over him, pulls out the sword, and I like to think he let it hang there for a dramatic effect. Takes the sword and cuts off the head. And then just cut it off and then roll it on the battleground. What does he do? He keeps it as a souvenir. 
takes it back to Jerusalem. So everybody, when they see, that's Goliath's head. But here's the important thing. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they ran. And the men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, chased the Philistines to the entrance and to the gates. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the road. Now, we're not going to dwell on the gory details anymore, all right? But here's the thing. We have trivialized this story so much that we lose the impact of the sheer improbability of it happening. And David says that in life, if we trust the Lord completely, there is no one who can prevail against us. Now, it's not just David that says that, right? In the New Testament in Romans, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the truth is, we are all facing things in our lives that aren't as difficult as the prospect of a nine foot nine fully armored giant. Although in the midst of our lives, they seem as significant as a nine foot nine fully armored giant. But the truth is, no matter what we're facing, God is bigger. Anytime you worry about anything in life, you are saying that your problem is bigger than God. And God is bigger. Whether it's a job situation, a relationship, whether it's family situation, whether it is something that's going on in your personal life, something going on in your social life, something going on in your professional life, God is bigger. And if we will trust Him completely, He will pull us through. Now, here's the truth. It may not be exactly like what we think. In fact, David following this has a very rough period for several years where he's living in caves and dodging swords from Saul because Saul is so worried about David taking his throne, which he should have been because David is going to take his throne. So it doesn't mean that it will be a life of luxury, but it means that God's on our side. Who cares? We trust in the Lord completely. What do you have in your life today that you need to trust the Lord completely in? Let's pray.